invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to the fourth gospel, to the gospel of John. As we're working our way through, we covered a very important uh, verse, and we're still in the section just to remember the context. The context being, of course, chapter 3, where a man named Nicodemus has found Jesus. He's gone to him by night, which either indicates that he is uh, fearful or that he just, uh, that's a practical reason where he finds him, the only time he seems to be alone is when he's, when it's at night. We don't really know, the text doesn't say, but this Nicodemus is quite a man in terms of his accomplishments, in terms of his, his expertise in the law of Moses, in terms of his role as a ruler uh, of, among the Jews. As Jesus refers to him with a definite article calling him the teacher of Israel, sort of expressing the confounding issue of you, you're the teacher of Israel. You don't understand that the very scriptures that you taught were speaking directly to these things that I'm about to tell you. He's saying a person must be born again. And it's interesting because Nicodemus didn't ask him a question. But this is our God who reads hearts. He knows what the conundrum is for Nicodemus. And so he's addressing the issue that is uppermost in Nicodemus's heart and not necessarily waiting for any question he already knows. So uh, he says in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's entering into language that should have been familiar to this ruler of the Jews, this scribe, this Pharisee, holds a seat on the 71-member Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the land, any of this starting to register, Nicodemus? You remember Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, the Lord is going to take out that stony heart and replace it with a heart of flesh. And these things are all in Scripture, Jeremiah, and in several places that should have made sense to him but he can't come up off of things earthly. How is it that a man can be born again, enter his mother's womb for a second time? That's impossible. Yeah, your method of getting to the kingdom of God is quite impossible. You have to be born from above. That's it. Now he's really got him because he's thinking, what, is, what does that even mean? So the questions end as we went along through this series. We got to uh, one of the most uh, widely known uh, verses in the New Testament or in the whole of Scripture, perhaps, and that is verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we broke that down and worked through that. He's gone into this sort of where we've left any kind of an interrogative or any kind of dialogue. It's now just clear teaching and instruction. And so he goes on from there as we looked at the rest of that in verse 17 and 18 last week. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. He didn't need to redo that. He doesn't need to come and remind him of that. It's quite clear. The law of God has been burnished in the heart of his creation, those who bear his image and likeness know that there's a judgment. They know there's a God, and they know there's a judgment. 
It's called a conscience, and they, they understand that. So I didn't come to condemn, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This morning we're taking on verse 19 to 21, and in this, in this message entitled Defeating Darkness. Darkness is the environment we live in. We are fallen creatures in a fallen world. So this is, this is our stomping grounds. We understand how dark the world is. We understand our own darkness if we have a conscious remembrance of what it was like before the light of Christ had come into our life. So we see this, this comparison here. And it's a very, very important one because we see it all through Scripture. As I mentioned in the first hour, things are set in antithesis. They're set in a dichotomy. It's either light or it's dark. I like that because for a simple-minded man like me, uh, it's either this or that. There aren't several categories on a spectrum to pick from. I like that. It's either good or it's evil or bad. Yeah, that's right. It's either right or it's... Don't you like that? I do. (laughs) It makes things simple. It makes things simple. Let's read together verse 19 through 21, and we'll get started and deep, dive deeply into this passage. So he's continuing this, this instruction to Nicodemus, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Of course, Lord, you've drawn our attention to the fact that the word light is is the most repeated word here, and it's important as it is juxtaposed next to its polar opposite, darkness. We know, Lord, that you have a word for us this morning. You have a message for your people this morning. And this is a massive topic. So I pray that you help us. Give us that extra bit of energy and mental focus this morning that we can see things in a proper perspective as we look at life, as we look at our life, as we look at the way of this world, as we look at the tendencies of our flesh, all of these things, Lord. So you've made these things very clear. It's man who obfuscates. It's man who muddles things. It's man who muddies them up with his fallen thoughts. But Lord, by your spirit, for those who know you, and have, in fact, reconciled with you through the Son, Jesus Christ, have full possession of the Holy Spirit of the living God, and so, therefore, the ability to make clear understanding of these things that you so clearly written. Help us now, we pray, for your name and your glory's sake. Amen. And I've said this a number of times, so I want to start here, and it's in the notes, because I want you to have this statement. Darkness is not an entity in and of itself. 
It is simply the condition that's found in the absence of light. Light is a something. Darkness is nothing. You have to start there. It's not as though darkness moves in. It's not this white dog, black dog fight between light and dark. No, all is dark when man falls because of the light's absence. And who is the light who became absent? That's something with a capital S, yeah? So that's where we start. We want to make sure we understand that, that darkness isn't a something. It's not an entity in and of itself. It's, it describes a condition. And what I want to do is draw your attention, of course, to the very first verses of your Bible. In Genesis chapter 1 and in the very first verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. No definition to it yet. No creatures on it. And darkness was over the face of the deep. There's no definition. There's no creatures that bear his image. There's nothing. It's without form and void. This is the very beginning of Genesis. That's the condition that you have when you have not any light. Now, in this case, the light comes, but it's physical light. It's actually made up of photons. There's something that he creates because he's created this world in a physical three-dimensional way. And so he had, he illuminated it. Now follow along. And he said, let there be light. And there was, and this would be physical, light. And God saw that the light was what? I want you to understand right from the start that light represents what? Good. You remember we spent a couple of weeks at least some amount of time talking about the importance of understanding what the goodness of God is. If God creates something, it is what? It's good. If God says something, it's good. Yes. So God saw that the light was good. Now here's the important concept that I want you to hold on to in your mind as we go forward. And God separated the light from the darkness. There's a reason for that. Those don't mix, and they're not intended to. There's a separation there. This is the judgment that light came into the world. People love the darkness. So those things, clearly, the Lord has made separate. There's a condition that's found when God removes His presence because His presence and sense of His Shekinah glory or the light that is Christ, the true light, which even John understands because we opened up in the first chapter, right? He is the true light. The true light has come into the world. Why? Because the world was dark and it was without Him. We, if, if you will, our hearts, if you will, were with, without form and void. And they were dark. There's nothing there. We were left with these, this fallen flesh. Okay? So, the day and the night, the light, the dark contrast marks the experience of every human being's life on this planet. Because he creates light and dark and he separates them. He separates them. He calls the light what? 
You're following. Good. And he calls the darkness night. And it was night. It was day. And it was night. It was day. And it was night. And it was day. And it was night. That's our context. That's, that's our experience. It's like, <laughs> and you're looking at me like fish that I'm trying to explain the experience of water to. <laughs> it's like, day and night, yeah, I got it. So throughout Scripture, he divides the darkness from the light is the heads up on this as we go forward. It, the light always is the next point. The light, oh, and this is just an introductory point, always overcomes what? The darkness. Does the darkness ever overcome the light? Well, no, that doesn't make sense if you listen to the first couple of minutes. No, it's just, a, it's not an entity. Or a phone. <laughs> so when without light, darkness prevails, yeah? Darkness is defeated when light arrives. When light comes... The darkness is dispelled. It's gone. It's vaporized. It can't abide the light. It doesn't take much of a light to illuminate or at least be able to see at least to a degree what's in a darkened room if you light a single match or a single candle. The darkness will never overcome the light. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only what? Light can do that. And so hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Who said that? Not you. No? (laughs) Martin Luther King Jr. A lesson that we could abide right now, couldn't we, in our culture? Hate should never answer hate because it will never drive hate away. Only love can do that. Just like the darkness can never drive away darkness. Only light can do that. Same thing. So in 1 John 1, 5, or uh, excuse me, first, or John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not over. Come it. Another fair translation would, would be it, it cannot overpower it. It's, it's not a thing. It's not a something. It's not an entity. It just disappears. It just disappears. It goes away. So God in 1 John 1 5, also 1 5, this is an inter- interesting juxtaposition. God is light and in him is what? No darkness at all. That's right. No darkness at all. Why? Because if you're filled with light, they're just, there's no room for darkness if you want to put it that way, right? That's the idea. So, but sin has separated us from the source of all spiritual life. That's uh, all spiritual life and light. That's what we find in the garden. That's what happened with the fall and with sin. So we can't see because it's dark. We can't see the Lord we can't see God. So we talk a lot about the importance of them seeing something of him in a corporeal way, living and expressing himself through the love of the, the believer, 
of the saint who bears the light. But remember, he is the phos. He is the source, the light source of all light. But he gives us what's translated as a lamp, right? We talked about that before at the beginning. The laknos in the Greek. So we have this We have to have a light so we can see who he is. He gives us that light. That lamp puts it in our hearts. And as we would say in France, voila. (laughs) I know French. (laughs) Not. So now we can see him high and lifted up. The God of goodness, grace, and mercy comes alive. All of these wonderful things that he's disclosing to us and revealing to us. It's as though our eyes are open for the first time. And it's amazing because it's nothing like what we knew in the absence of light, in the absence of love, in the absence of truth. Now we have the truth. We have the light has come. He's trying to get this through to Nicodemus. So fallen mankind is locked in this perpetual state of darkness unless someone with great power and great light enters in, yeah? Yeah. A light must come. You know, Randy read Psalm 4 for us. I want to isolate verse 6 here this morning. There are many who say, who will show us some good? This is Psalm 4, verse 6. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. So the light of your face is used three different places in the psalm so it's 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 an important concept it, it got my attention it was very intriguing it takes light to be able to see his face his face would be indicative of who he is and what he's come to say so he speaks truth we can see and we can hear with ears to hear that's why jesus said you you've got eyes but you cannot see you have ears but you cannot hear don't you get this Nicodemus this has got to happen from above you can't do this how will you do that yourself it's impossible so because people are spiritually blind if they're, if they're pressed to answer this question or, or maybe they're the ones that is being thought of in this verse all they can do is grope around in the darkness for physical things that they can see. Is this what prosperity is? Is this God's idea of prosperity? Is this God's idea of well-being? Is this God's idea of happiness? It's cheap. It's a counterfeit. It's temporary. It doesn't last. And it never, ever satiates. It never satisfies. So, There must be some difference. Who's going to show us some good? Or maybe he recognizes that there's some intrinsic good. There's something that my conscience is telling me is good. I mean the way God would define good. But who can find it? This is the heart cry of the blind. Who can find it? And so they grope around like the men who would have their way with the two angels that visited Lot. Struck blind and they're still groping. That's, that's what we see in our world. It should strike a pathetic sadness in us for their sakes. Think of it as the worst of the handicapped spiritually. 
We have great pity, great love and compassion and care for handicapped people. And this is the greatest of all handicaps. They can, can't see. They can't see him. So they, they, they can't rightly define prosperity, well-being, and happiness. And so they grope around in the trash heap, in, in, the, in the dungeon, in the dung heap of what the world has to offer in its fallen state. They try to grab, keep all that they can. But the light has come. So actually the word some, in that verse, who will show us some good? The word some is not in the Hebrew text. He's saying, who will show us good? Who will show us good? You looked for good in another person. And they betrayed you. Or they let you down. Or they've offended you. Or you looked for good in your work. Or you've looked for good in family members that disappointed you. I mean, there's a whole host of ways that we look for good if we're spiritually blind. Who will show us good? Indeed. And even believers, right? Even believers can have, be blinded to the prosperity as defined by God. He, he could say very well to me, son, you don't really know what prosperity prosperous is in my Lord and Christ. You don't know. You don't know what happiness is. The happiness of abiding in my son. You have no clue. I want to know, Lord. I want to know. So even believers, either in their sin or their ignorance or Have you heard the expression? We've talked about it lately with some of the tech guys in here. I have because I'm always curious. There's always some question. Willful suspension of unbelief that we employ when we're watching a movie, yeah? Gen Z's like, yeah, yeah. That's old school. This is willful suspension of belief that believers can engage in and they lose sight of what true prosperity and happiness is. And well-being is, you see, a willful suspension of belief. Because we know from whence cometh those three things. And yet we willfully suspend that belief that for a moment's indulgence. Curious, isn't it? Curious. I want to read something. There's a couple of quotations that I find just too powerful and too sweet and too rich to neglect. And first one is from Spurgeon. Listen to what he says here. As for worldlings, this is their unceasing cry. Who will show us good? Never satisfied, their gaping mouths are turned in every direction. Their empty hearts are ready to drink in any fine delusion which imposters may invent. And when these fail, they soon yield to despair and declare that there is no good thing in either heaven or earth. I remember coming to that conclusion. The true believer is a man of a very different mold. His face is not downward like the beast's, 
But upward, like the angels, he drinks not from the muddy pools of mammon, but from the fountain of life above. The light of God's countenance is enough for him. Is it enough for me? Is it enough for you? This is his riches, he goes on to say, his honor, his health, his ambition, his ease. Give him this and he will ask no more. This is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, for more of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that our fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, may be constant and abiding. Amen and amen, I would say. End quote. The amens were mine. And that led me to this verse. We hear it a lot, but it's so powerful in the context that we're looking at here. This idea of give us the light of your face. We need light is what we need. Light, Nicodemus, is what is needed here. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. The God, in other words, if you'll allow me, who invented physical light, that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. From whence cometh our knowledge? From whence cometh our an accurate understanding of reality. Rummaging around in the thoughts of man? I mean, friends, that's why we're biblical counselors, right? It's not that we're fighting with some other belief system. It's just that we don't need it. Look at what we have. The light of God in the face of Jesus Christ who brings that light so we can understand people's problems. We can understand ourselves and our problems. Is this word insufficient for that, for such a, my goodness. That's where the battle is, by the way. That's the frontline battle of the church of Jesus Christ today. Is the word sufficient? And it is. It makes an unequivocal claim that it is. Now listen to Jonathan Edwards. A sense of the beauty of Christ is the beginning of true saving faith in the life of a true convert. A glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ causes in the heart a supreme, genuine love for God. Amen? This is because the divine light shows the excellent loveliness of God's nature. The true love of God, which comes from this sight of His beauty, causes a spiritual and holy joy in the soul, a joy in God, and exulting in Him. There is no rejoicing in ourselves, but rather in God alone. The sight of the beauty of divine things will cause true desires after the things of God. Now you're on track. Now you're on the path. Now you're following Him. But you follow Him according to the light, the light of His Word. He goes on, the desires that come from this, from this sight of Christ's beauty are natural free desires because they are so different from their counterfeits. Are there counterfeits in this world? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
They help to distinguish genuine experiences of God's grace from the false, end quote. I mean, is this money or what? This is good. These things are true. These things are real. He defines beauty. He defines good. He defines truth. He's the author of all these things. Why should we be surprised? There's your introduction. Three points this morning as we break these three verses down. The first one coming from verse 19. The light descends into darkness. Second from verse 20 will be the light disgusts the sinner. And the last is the light that draws the saint. So verse 19, we'll cover these as we go. The light descends into darkness. Watch this. And this is the judgment. He's speaking to Nicodemus. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So that implies that they know that a light has come into the world, doesn't it? Because they've rejected it and instead loved what? Darkness. And there's a reason why, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. People love the darkness. So since darkness is a non-entity, now follow this. Since darkness is a non-entity, what did they love? They loved the condition that they find themselves in, in their willful suspension of belief to allow them to think that what they're doing that is an entity, it's sinful, is not seen. Did you follow that? Neither did I. But it sounded good. Say it again. All right, I'm going to say it again. Okay, since the darkness is, is not a thing, how can you fall in love with nothing? Start there. It's a condition where light has been removed. What did they fall in love with? They, fall, they fell in love with something they thought was an entity that's covering them up while the thing that they truly love, which is sinful, is not seen. How crazy is that? How insane is that? Aren't you glad Christians never do that? Lord, have mercy. Help us. They think they're hiding. But Christians have to engage in willful suspension of belief, don't they? Because why? Well, let's look at a couple verses, shall we? Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing. We thought maybe we were covered up by this darkened state, whether good or evil. Romans 2, 16, on that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Not interested in the things we say because we say all kinds of things to posture ourselves a certain way because we're reputation managers. I want you to think of me a certain way. God's looking straight through that. Just like Jesus is with Nicodemus. Here's what you want to know, Nicodemus. This that you're looking for, is you've heard some of my teaching and it's got you curious. It has to happen from above. God has to do this. God is the source of life, the sole source of life. You remember our light. You remember our last series. God is the sole source of what begins with an L. Love. 
This is what's got to happen, Nicodemus. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Paul is writing to those who are judging him, right? Before the Lord comes, and then he says this, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. He's not only going to reveal the things done in secret, he's going to reveal the reason why you and I do them. Evil is paneros in the Greek. It means diseased. It, it can mean a number of things. Morally culpable, for sure. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called evil. There's a moral component. There's moral culpability there. It means derelict, vicious, bad, grievous, harmful, lewd, malicious, atrociously wicked. This is a strong word. Their deeds were evil. Very bad. Psalm 90, verse 8, we're reminded again here, you have set our iniquities before you. He's got all of my sins splayed out on his table before him. Where's that willful suspension of belief that you need in that moment? It's amazing how schizophrenic we can be, isn't it? Leading dual lives you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in what? In the light of your presence. When, when God is there, when Christ is there, everything's illuminated. Everything. Good, bad, evil, whatever it is, it gets exposed. That's what the light does. Hebrews 4.13 And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 1 John 1, 6-8. He's speaking to, he's writing to Christians here, okay? That's the context. My little children, brethren. These, this is written to Christians. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, yes, Christians can try to cover up with darkness, and that should be a nonsensical statement because it's not a thing. It's a condition, a place we try to run and hide because we've got something we're thinking, saying, or doing that needs to be hidden. If we say we have fellowship with him, with Jesus, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You're not fellowshipping with him. He didn't say your salvation's taken away. You have no fellowship with him. None. You're practicing sin. You have no fellowship with him. But, here's the good news, right? In verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Hallelujah. Relationship restored as soon as we well, remember his first chapter in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is just to do two things. What? Forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll do that. He stands at the ready to do that any moment. Who, why doesn't it happen? There's one in that transaction that's holding back. Who is it? Us. Yeah, exactly. 
Point number two. So the light descends into darkness. The light has come because they've seen it, because they've made a choice. We're rejecting the light. We want our sin. We love ourselves. We love our sin. Secondly, the light disgusts the sinner. That's what we learn in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So that's the point we've been talking about. Wicked is phallos. This is, you could say, evil here. He hates, the light is interesting, miseo, to despise or detest. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't that we see characterizing those who would see Christ crucified? They're not just casual about it. It's not just that he broke a law and they dropped a gavel. Okay, well, I guess he's got the death sentence. There's a hatred there. There's a, he, they detest him. They, they probably couldn't even explain why. They're trying to explain it away with false testimony against him and so on. What, what have I done? Healed people? Fed people? What is it? They wanted me to be king. I ran away. What, what's your problem? Why do you hate me? I, I get why you might not want to be part of what we're doing, but why don't you just pass on by? Why do you need to have me killed? Indeed. Listen to this. I wanted to marshal together, and I had way more than we have time for, but let me just give you some choice, choice nuggets here of how God's people hated the sinner hates the light lest his deeds be exposed because they know full well, obviously, that exposure to them, to the light of truth, will reveal their heart and their deeds, their motives, all of those things. Isaiah 30, 9 to 11. Listen to this. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. Stop that. We don't, want to, we don't want to know what God is showing you. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. They hate that. It's not just, you know, yawn, I'm not into that. They hate it with a white hot hatred. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Can you find houses that'll do that this morning? Of course you can. Of course you can. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path, they're saying to God's prophets. We don't want to hear from God. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. I don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> this is His own people. The people He chose. Who are the people He chose today? Yeah. He wrote this to us for a reason. Let it not be lost on us. Second Chronicles 36, 11 to 12. This is Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. So see, there's the problem. Verse 15 and 16, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers. And what, why does he keep sending messengers, by the way? What's motivating him to keep doing that? Love. He loves them. He keeps 
bringing it to their minds. He wants them back. Love when its object is distant is a love in a state of longing. He wants them back. It's his possession. There's possessive terms for the people that belong to God. Those he's willing to send his own son to sacrifice his life that that closeness might be restored so that love when its object is near is love in a state of indulgence, right? He keeps sending them persistently to them by messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God. They scorn them. They mock them. They chide them. Despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. Well, I should say, until there was no remedy. There's a point at which it's over. He's going to deal with those who hate the truth. Zechariah 7, 11 to 12. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears. You can picture them like this. They, I don't want to hear this that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, it says, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. He eventually gives them over to it, doesn't he? Amos says simply, chapter 5, verse 10, they hate him who reproves at the gate and abhor him who speaks the truth. They hate it. They hate it. You wonder why it's, we were talking in the first hour, why it's hard for Christians to confront the sin in other Christians' lives, that's it. Because if somebody's continuing in sin, they hate the truth. So they're going to hate the bearer of truth. That's why. Not an easy business. But my favorite is this, Job 24, and then I'll just give you a list and we're going to move on. My favorite is Job 24, 13 to 17. There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways and do not stay in its paths. The murderer rises before it is light, that he may kill the poor and needy. And in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for twilight, saying, No eye will see me. And he veils his face. In the dark they dig through houses. By day they shut themselves up. They do not know the light. They have no interest in the day, do they? They come alive at night. For the deep darkness is morning to them all. That's the beginning of my day. For they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. Some other verses there, passages for you to look at. I'm going to move on because it made me think of a character I'm sure you're all familiar with. Are you familiar with Count Dracula? That's <laughs> what it reminded me of, okay? That's the illustration you get because it came to my mind. 
He was terrified of two things. Do you remember? He was terrified of the cross and of daylight. You remember? The writer has these things in mind. He doesn't want, he's avoiding the close contact with the truth. Why? I dug into that little, a little bit. He, he doesn't want the truth. He doesn't want the light of day. One writer said, Dracula's fear of the cross stems from the fact that he is terrified. He's frightened to, of death. He has no courage for death. I don't want to see. So the cross confronts him with a man, Jesus, who was willing to die. End quote. Isn't that interesting? Plato said, who... We can forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. True enough. Luke 12, 2-3, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. These are three powerful verses, folks. Let's get to the last one, shall we? Because this is the good news, after all. So the third is, we, so we look at how the light disgusts the center, sinners. They have a hatred, a, a revulsion, a, a repulsion of it. But the light actually draws the saint. The true saint, the true child of God will be drawn to truth, will be drawn to what really God defines as love. He'll be drawn to that. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out by God. Proverbs 4.18 says the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. As long as we walk in truth, we're talking about the importance of truth in the first hour today, the importance of, of truth, <clears throat> excuse me, and having truth as part of your being. Doing, as was mentioned, must flow from being. So otherwise it's perfunctory. Nicodemus, you need to get this point. You need to get this point. You need something to happen in terms of your being, in terms of you know, who you are, and that can only happen from above. So walking in the truth of God's word illumines our path, as I mentioned earlier, which leads to and through the cross onto glory. That's, that's his lamp for us. That's what he does. He illumines this, and he says, come, follow me, follow me. You step outside of this, it gets dark. You come back in and reconcile with God, and the light comes back. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. Or verse 130 from Psalm 119, the unfolding of your words gives light. So what has to happen? What has to happen, as he made clear to Nicodemus, is there has to be something, as I just said, that has to be born from above. It has to be a work of God. Regeneration, the washing of regeneration, Titus 3, 5, has to happen. God, that's a work of God. That's what's got to happen. And when that happens, 
The morning star, the brightness of the morning star, who is Christ, rises in your heart, right? That's 2 Peter 1.19. We have the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn, day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Why does it say dawn? He's the day star that dawns in the heart. Because we were living how? Yes, we were living in darkness. Yes, in the absence of light. And when he comes. And so now I draw your attention again to what we saw in Genesis 1. He separated the, the night from the day. Now, while I'm putting my final notes on the sermon this morning, I'm sitting at my desk. I was up in the office to, I don't know, 5 o'clock or whenever it was. And I, while I'm pondering these things, my office window faces east. And, and when I first got there, it was dark. And I have a huge tree and some other trees in our yard. I couldn't see them at all, you know, and I'm, so as I'm, as I'm putting these things together, um, every time I look up, there's just a little bit more that I can see and understand. There's a little bit more of reality that becomes clear. The morning star rises in your heart. Is sanctification not a process? Yes. And he rises until we go home in glory and have the full experience of his Shekinah glory. Everything is made clear. Amazing. Those who love Jesus are drawn to the light of his word. Even though they know fully well, not only because it reveals the resplendent beauty of our Lord Christ, even knowing full well that it's also going to reveal what? Our wretched hearts. And that's what he wants. He wants to be there when that sun comes up. He wants to be standing with us when he reveals these things to us. Why would we shun him at that moment? Why would we run for the darkness? That's his intention. Because he knows what a prosperous life is. He knows what well-being, physical and spiritual well-being are. He knows what true happiness are. Is. That's why. And because he loves you. Plain and simple. He loves you enough to go through that entire process. That work that I've begun, what? I promise to complete. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure, right? Isn't that glorious? So he's going to reveal these despicable objects, these wayward thoughts, these tendencies of mine, these proclivities that I have. Why? Because he came to condemn them? No, we cleared that up already, didn't we? I didn't come to condemn. Why? Because, Mark, you're condemned already. <laughs> and you don't want to know the whole host of your sins. You should be thankful that your memory is actually faulty. You wouldn't bear it if you could see it all. But I bore it. I bore it all. You don't even know the sins you're about to commit. You have no idea. And I would do it all over again. 
because I love you. What kind of love is this? Psalm 1, 1 to 3, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of scoffers, nor sits in the, or of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. There's a progression there. He doesn't walk with them. He doesn't stand. He doesn't, they don't catch his attention. He doesn't even pause with them. And he doesn't actually just sit down with them and discuss these things. No, he doesn't want any part of it. He walks on by. That's him. What does he do? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by a stream of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he he prospers. There it is. That's how it's done. I got to remember that. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see, illuminate. O bright morning star, illuminate, show me. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me. You see? In the way, what? Everlasting. Psalm 139, 23 to 24. And then he says, so that in our text, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out by God. And when we're walking and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, these manifest deeds that Ephesians 2 and verse 10 says are his workmanship in us for good deeds that he appointed for us before time began. You remember? When we do that, then it's clear that that man or woman is carrying out the works of God. Listen to this glorious. Now this this verse came alive for me. Listen to this. Isaiah 26, 12. O Lord, you ordain peace for us. You have done for us all our works. How about that? Is that time not is that not time to say thank you lord if there was any good coming out of my life as you define good if anything praiseworthy you have done it it belongs to you entirely it is you who is at work in me both to will and to work according to your pl- pleasure i'm to yield i'm to yield to this spirit who produces that fruit and when that fruit is outward when it's seen in a in a physical sense we can see that god's at work in us they may see clearly that his deeds have been carried out in god you have done for us all our works He's done it. He's done it all. Ephesians 5, 8, and 9. As we spend our last few minutes bringing this into a wonderful conclusion. Ephesians 5, 8, and 9. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's you who know Him. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Remember our verse that your deeds are clearly seen because you're walking in the light. The text goes on, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
wonderful passage. So living this fully illuminated life and pursuing that light manifests tangible evidence. That's what he's saying. Tangible evidence. I can see the evidence. You will know them by their fruits. Yeah, I can see the fruit of Jesus Christ in this person. It's, it's wonderful because it's glorious and it brings joy to my heart to see my God that I love that saved me manifest in this brother or sister. It's glorious. Things are light and they're alive. There's life in that place. God is with us, working His will through us, and His glory is seen by others that observe us. How about that? What a privilege. There's there's so many chapters I can't can't wait to get to in John's Gospel, right? There's there's seven I am statements, right? The first one will come up in chapter 6, verse 35. Then in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the what? You remember? Think of our context. I am what? The love of, of the world. Mm-hmm. Those who follow me shall not walk in darkness, but they'll have a certain kind of life. Light, the light of, but we'll have the light of life. You in? You on board? I am. Um. Job 33, 28 to 30. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit. And my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit. Get that. He does this once, twice, three times. He's the hound of heaven. He's going to come after you. You're the object of his love, and so far you're distant. So it's an object of his longing. He's coming after you. Then he goes on. To bring his soul back from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. I'm going to come at you because you're dead, and I'm going to keep coming. I like what John Hartley said on this verse. God does not give up after an initial try has been frustrated. There is, however, a necessary end to God's extension of grace should a person continually spurn God's efforts to lead him, end quote. So we have to know that this time that God has created, this timeline continuum that we find ourselves in in our existence is closing. We, we have a clock. I got to wrap things up soon because you're all starting to think about lunch. Okay, so there's a clock. So we pray and we persuade, we pray, and we urge, and we count on this concept that God will continue to go after them. Isaiah 60, verse 19, the sun shall be no more. We want them to be part of that great band of redeemed people, right? Where the sun shall be no more. This light and day, he says, it's not going to be a light and a day. It's not a 24-hour light and then night. No more light by day. For the brightness shall the moon, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Verse 20 
Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Amen? Amen. Oh, my. I like what Kylan Dillich said here. The sum of the days of mourning allotted to the church is complete at this point. The sum of the days of mourning allotted to the church is complete. The darkness of the corruption of sin and state of punishment is overcome. Light always overcomes darkness. And the church is nothing but holy, blessed joy without change and disturbance, for it walks no longer in starry light, but in the eternally unchangeable light of Jehovah which with its peaceful gentleness and perfect purity illumines within as well as without. What's that going to look like? End quote. Let's finish with Revelation, shall we? Revelation 22, 3 to 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so great, grateful for these words. We, these are, are profound and words that impact us to the core of our being. Lord, I pray for anyone within the sound of my voice who doesn't know you in this way, having been revealed, hasn't known the joy of the morning star, the bright morning star rising up in their hearts, that they would now understand that this relentlessness of your love stands ready for them if they would simply come. Simply confess, Lord, I do live in darkness. I live in the ways of the world. I'm drawn by the shiny objects that the enemy, the devil, the, the God of this world as he's defined, dangles in front of my face. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me. How could I replace such glorious, pure love an effulgence of joy and gratitude, an eternal life in light for a cheap, dark, dingy counterfeit. But you understand these things, O oh Lord, because we do not have a high priest who does not understand the infirmity of our ways, the fallenness of our flesh, but you do understand. I thank you for that understanding. I thank you for the relentless nature of your love. So come after us, O Lord. Come after us that you might be glorified in what you illuminate through us that others might see. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.